episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the number of new cases and deaths were relatively flat, although rising in about half of the states. We're still seeing over 1,000 deaths per day. Putting that in context, that number would mean over 300,000 deaths a year a huge loss of life if it continues. And there's growing fear that our nation could see a significant spike following the holidays and across the winter as people gather indoors. Overall, according to the CDC, only 59% of Americans are fully vaccinated, putting us behind dozens of other countries that started after us. Moreover, only 37% of adults 65 and over have received the booster despite data on loss of immunity after six months. And so far, 10% of kids aged five to 11 are vaccinated. That's positive given how recently the FDA approval was given, but far from making a big impact. Danger awaits the country around the corner. This growing fear and the data on waning immunity following vaccination led the FDA and CDC to approve and recommend booster shots for all Americans over the age of 18 who are six months or more after receiving their second dose of Pfizer and Moderna or two months after Johnson and Johnson. Prior to that approval, 10 states, including disparate ones like Arkansas, Colorado, West Virginia, California, and Louisiana, had already made the change in their guidelines in order to overcome the immense confusion that the first set of FDA and CDC recommendations created. In the initial guidelines, there were vague categories, ones we discussed in prior episodes for people who are at risk due to disease and occupation, it was clear that for the booster program to work, we had to simplify the process for all Americans. In parallel to the efforts to protect people in the United States, the government is working to help poorer nations battle the pandemic. Most recently, the Biden administration brokered a deal to provide doses of the J&J vaccine to conflict zones around the globe. When drug companies provide medications to other nations, they usually require the receiving government to agree to accept liability for any complications that ensue. In conflict zones, often there's no accountable government to assume this risk. J&J has agreed to waive that clause in the context that the U.S. will purchase 1.5 million doses and other countries will be purchasing an additional 300,000 doses, all for humanitarian purposes. 
In addition, Pfizer has agreed to allow other nations to manufacture its new oral pill to diminish serious disease when taken soon enough following the onset of COVID-19 symptoms. This should help to reduce the death rate while vaccinations are being given. It's clear that the poor and war-torn nations of the world are struggling to provide protection for their people. In contrast, people in the richer nations, they're getting progressively annoyed at individuals who remain unvaccinated. Singapore will stop paying the medical bills for people who are unvaccinated. Austria, a country that is seeing a spike in cases, has implemented a lockdown for unvaccinated individuals, and they'll be mandating the vaccine be received by all adults starting February 1st. In Australia, people over the age of 16 who are unvaccinated are prohibited from visiting other people's homes. And in the United States, the governor of New York told the public that the state may have to put back in place a variety of mask and social distancing mandates. And she blamed the unwillingness of the people who have yet to be vaccinated for her having to take this step. My take is the frustration of people looking to the potential of another year of pandemic is escalating exponentially. And it's doing so not only for those already vaccinated, but those who are refusing to do so. And supporting the push to vaccination, the CDC released data from a study it did comparing vaccinated individuals and unvaccinated ones in the context of the data variant and waning immunity. What they found was that the protection afforded by the current vaccines was less now than what it had been in the past prior to the Delta variant, but still huge. Unvaccinated individuals in the research they conducted had five times the risk of becoming infected and 10 times the chance of dying. Robbie, let me ask you some more about the vaccine hesitancy challenges you mentioned. Last week, you published a Forbes article with some innovative approaches. Uh, can you summarize what you wrote? The article began by pointing out that the place in the United States with the highest vaccination rate is Puerto Rico, even better than New England states that pride themselves on their success to date. And the number of new cases on the island is extremely low. Their approach to maximizing people's willingness to be vaccinated is looking for opportunities to reduce what psychologists call friction. Rather than expecting everyone to come to a health center, they brought the vaccine to people wherever they were, in schools, in nightclubs, at the beach, and even to their homes. I suggest in the Forbes article that we might do the same, including providing vaccinations at churches and in schools, particularly of the largest cities. And to reduce the friction created by fear, let religious and educational leaders talk about the vaccine's life-saving benefits and minimal risks. In Puerto Rico, the political divide is almost non-existent, which researchers felt was a major contribution to their success. In the article, I expressed my doubt that on the mainland, putting politics behind us is possible, but maybe we can do something to reduce the heat. Specifically, I suggested, based on the psychological literature, that we begin by bringing more moderate members of both parties together, maybe for a TV show, and talk about the areas on which they can agree, rather than focusing as we usually do on the points of disagreement. Could they concur that vaccines work, that their risks are extremely low, or at least that vaccines save lives? If not, I suggest they should sit together, review the literature together, spend a few days doing so, and come back a week later and have the conversation about, again, where they agree 
And in this case, based on the literature, where they might have some disagreements. At a minimum, I would hope that everyone would concur that saving lives, that should be a common goal. And let's talk about all the ways that we can agree to accomplish it and then move forward to do them. I can't be sure if such an approach would make a difference, but what we're doing today at narrowing the partisan divide, that's clearly failing. Robbie, I heard that cases in Europe are spiking despite relatively high vaccination rates. What's going on and is there a spike in deaths too? Jeremy, you're absolutely right. We're seeing a surge in cases despite the vaccination rates in many countries being higher than the United States. But the overall average, that doesn't tell the full story. So let's delve deeper into the data. And we're gonna see that there's a nuanced pattern with a clear message. First, much of the increase in well-vaccinated nations reflects the easing of social distancing and masking requirements, which happened several months ago. Before that number of cases in these nations was extremely low. So the recent percent increase doesn't necessarily mean that the problem has reached a crisis point. But in some countries, particularly when measured by deaths, it has. So let's go deeper. In Spain, Italy, France, and most of Southern Europe, the number of new cases is rising, but the number of hospitalizations and deaths remain very small, fitting the pattern we just discussed. In Northern Europe, the onset of winter has pushed the numbers higher than in the South, but still much lower than the United States. In these countries, leaders believe that this increased frequency of disease predominantly reflects waning immunity. But even here, the mortality rates remain low. The biggest problem, particularly when it comes to death rates, is Eastern Europe, where vaccination rates in countries like Bulgaria and Romania are 19% and 27% respectively. There, the cases are soaring, the deaths are soaring, and the COVID-19 mortality is 25 times higher than in Italy. For listeners, let me give you the specific numbers. For background, the United States is 3.6 deaths per million. In Italy, 0.78. Germany, about half of the US, 1.59. Bulgaria, 22.81. These numbers show three things. First, vaccines are highly effective and those unvaccinated face a huge risk of infection and death. Second, immunity wanes and boosters are needed to maximally prevent infection and death. And third, when people gather indoors without masks, they increase their chance of contacting and contracting COVID-19. Although those who have received boosters still have tremendous protection with a dramatically reduced risk estimated to be over 90% of hospitalization and death. Robbie, I read that Moderna is battling the NIH over patent rights for its vaccine. What's happening? Jeremy, you're right. Almost all drug companies rely on government-funded basic science research there at the National Institute of Health. Often, the public that funds this work, and they fund it through their taxes, but they don't receive financial payback for the research they have bankrolled. One of the key reasons 
that the scientists there are excluded from the patents by the pharmaceutical companies that submit them. In this case, the government has insisted that US scientists, the NIH, co-invented a critical part of the Moderna mRNA vaccine. And that would make the federal government entitled to receive some of the immense revenue the vaccine generates. In addition, being on the patent would allow the government to empower other drug companies to manufacture the vaccine. If federal officials felt that Moderna was not making it globally available or pricing it at an affordable level in the United States. In making the mRNA vaccine, researchers have to choose a particular sequence of the genetic materials for different nucleotide building blocks. As we've explained the coronavirus, the truth, there are constant mutations in the virus which alter this sequence. So getting it as accurate as possible can be difficult. The NIH says that their work contributed to Moderna's ability to do so. While the company claims the specific sequence was chosen, quotes, by Moderna scientists using Moderna technology. And they went on to say that the NIH scientists didn't get involved until after a patent request was filed. After close to a year of debate, it's likely this multi-billion dollar disagreement will go to court. Moderna's profits, by the way, in 2021 are estimated to be between 15 and $18 billion. In contrast to Moderna, which began as a relatively small company in need of both the scientific teams of the NIH and the governmental funding for its clinical trials, Pfizer availed itself of neither and it ran its clinical testing independently. As a result, they have not been included in this battle to date, but at some point they too will be confronted whether specific to the mRNA vaccine or more likely to a large number of the company's other medications, many of which were developed on top of federally funded work done by scientific experts at the NIH. Robbie, labor unions tend to defend the rights of their members and oppose any restrictions that are not negotiated through their collective service agreements. Where have they stood relative to vaccines? Jeremy, we've seen strong resistance to vaccine mandates among some unions, particularly those representing police officers and firefighters. In several cities, however, this resistance has happened in the context of criticism of police departments relative to excess force and calls for defunding. Separating the politics from the medical concerns always proves difficult. But what's most interesting to me now is how many unions have taken the opposite position and supported vaccine mandates. Most recently, SEIU 32BJ, which represents 175,000 building workers, UFCW, which represents 1.3 million food processing workers across the nation, and the AFL-CIO with 12 million members in construction, transportation, and multiple other areas, all filed the petition to expand the government's vaccine mandate to companies smaller than 100 employees. In their filings, they say the current federal directive fails to adequately protect all workers who face a grave danger from COVID-19 exposure in the workplace. Many of the individuals represented by these unions, like the workers who clean offices in New York City, and those who are meat packers, 
have experienced a huge number of infections and deaths. I applaud the leadership of these unions for taking aggressive action to protect their members. Rabbi, speaking about vaccine mandates, what's the status of uh, President Biden's plan for businesses with more than 100 employees? The mandate issued by President Biden, which would be enforced by OSHA, is temporarily on hold. New Orleans-based U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals declined to lift the stay imposed by a lower court. The justices were concerned that imposing the mandate could lead to increased workplace strife and economic upheaval. To date, 27 states have filed legal challenges to the government's action in at least six federal appeals courts. The government is requesting that all of the cases be consolidated into a single circuit court chosen at random. Given how difficult the political persuasions are among the various appeals courts, it's likely the Supreme Court will ultimately be asked to weigh in on the constitutionality of the vaccine mandate. In the interim, businesses continue to lead the way. And so far, with few exceptions, their ability to mandate proof of vaccination or require weekly testing has been upheld. Rabbi, I keep hearing people talk about the impact social distancing and isolation have had on their mental health. What's the latest information? The psychological consequences of COVID-19 have been immense. As you remember, Jeremy, in previous shows, we've discussed surveys demonstrating a large and concerning rise in anxiety and depression. Recently, data from the federal government's National Center for Health Statistics noted that for the 12-month period ending April 2021, more than 100,000 Americans have died of a drug overdose, and that's up close to 30% from the 78,000 deaths the year before. This number is more than the total deaths in the U.S. from traffic fatalities and gun violence combined. Public health experts blame a combination of growing isolation from the pandemic with reduced access to treatment facilities and wider availability of potent street drugs, often laced with a narcotic called fentanyl, which is 100 times more potent than morphine. Approximately 70% of the total drug overdose deaths were among men ages 25 to 54, with the largest percentage increases in California, Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, and Kentucky, and they have affected both white and black individuals. Robbie, how will the need for booster shots impact our nation's definition of fully vaccinated? Jeremy, this is likely to be a major question and point of contention for our nation. Already, some countries like France are requiring proof of having had a booster shot for people aged 65 to qualify as fully vaccinated and dine indoors. And Great Britain is poised to do the same. Many health officials in the U.S. are pushing to make the same change. And the governors in Connecticut, New Mexico are already moving in that direction. So far, only 70% of U.S. adults have received the booster shot, according to the CDC. Although, as we noted at the beginning of today's show, part of the problem is how confusing the criteria were for being eligible. And now that everyone over 18 who is six months out from the Moderna or the Pfizer 
can get the booster shot, I'm optimistic that we're going to see the numbers rise. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? The first piece of good news, Jeremy, is the data on mask wearing. According to a study published in the prestigious British Medical Journal, the number of new COVID-19 cases drops by half among people who wear masks compared to those who do not. The data in their study showed that social distancing and hand washing also helped, but not quite as much as mask wearing. Specifically, physical distancing reduced infection by 25%, hand washing by 12%. Although we've known that masks help, the magnitude of this reduction was far more than most health experts assumed and from a good news perspective, provides a powerful tool when infections rise. This paper was authored by infectious disease experts in the United Kingdom, China, and Australia, and it was based on 72 studies from the literature, studies that came from over 200 countries. A second piece of good news is how often schools are able to open for in-person education and even eliminate mask requirements when all students are vaccinated. Currently with COVID-19 numbers increasing and vaccination rates relatively low, the CDC continues to recommend indoor masking and three foot social distancing for kids and teenagers age five to 18 when they're in school. I'm hopeful that as more and more kids are vaccinated, this requirement can be eased in the future and the educational process quickly brought back to that which is more normal. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's the big healthcare story? Jeremy, there's been a large amount of new information relative to healthcare costs and coverage. Some positive and some problematic. Let's start with the negative. The Kaiser Family Foundation reported that the cost of employer health benefits for a family of four is now $22,000 a year. And remember that employed individuals and their families tend to be much healthier than people covered under Medicare who are older, usually 65 and above. And for employed workers, the survey found that they had to pay on average almost $6,000 a year towards coverage and for their out-of-pocket expenses. And they have to pay this with post-tax dollars. Currently, 85% of employers now include a deductible plan, and that's up from 74% a decade ago. The relative burden on workers and their families has nearly doubled over the past 10 years. As a result, 38% of people surveyed said that they're worried about paying the medical bills. And I believe as a country, we're at a tipping point with businesses not able to afford the rate of healthcare cost inflation and their ability to transfer an even higher percentage of the increase to workers has hit a wall. Similarly, we're seeing challenges in Medicare. The premium paid by senior citizens will go up 14.5% next year. And that's massive. Half of that relates to the drug used to treat early Alzheimer's disease, the one manufactured by Biogen that we discussed on a previous episode. 
listeners will remember that has a price tag of $55,000 a year and little evidence of it actually working. So far, the medication has been given to very many people since insurers haven't been willing to include it on their formularies, and to date, Medicare has not covered it as well. However, once the FDA approves a medication, as it did in this case, Medicare has always done so, with commercial plans usually following suit. But we'll see. Given how negatively the scientific advisory group evaluated this drug and how strongly its members opposed approval, this could be the first exception to the Medicare. Let me do it again. Given how negatively the scientific advisory group evaluated this drug and how strongly its members opposed approval, this could be the first exception to the approach of the past. A colleague of mine, Dr. Devi Shetty, is a heart surgeon trained in the US who works in India. His results and those of his team are as good as the best in the US. And the cost of care is $1,800 a case as opposed to over $100,000 in the United States. He talks, however, about how each morning when he gets to the hospital, there's a line of 30 mothers with 30 babies in their arms. All the children have been well worked up. They need cardiac surgery for congenital heart de defects. Only a few mothers ask about the risks of the procedure, but they all ask about the cost. Even though he and his team do the procedure for what seems to be an affordable amount, since 90% of people in India don't have insurance, those who can't borrow at least some of the money have no choice but to take their child home to die. I hope, Jeremy, that our nation never reaches that point. On the positive side, we're seeing more and more states that are recognizing the importance of healthcare coverage for children early in life. Mothers who are pregnant and don't have other healthcare coverage are able to enroll in Medicaid for their maternal services and the cost of delivery. But coverage for themselves and their child ends soon after delivery. Virginia, along with Illinois and New Jersey, recently extended postpartum coverage for 12 months after delivery, with the cost being funded through the American Rescue Plan. You may remember that this legislation was passed by Congress in response to the economic challenges created by COVID-19. Despite our nation spending nearly twice what every other industrialized country does, our clinical outcomes lag with shorter life expectancy, higher childhood mortality, and the worst maternal mortality by far. Even more worrisome is that the death rates for mothers and babies is rising. Hopefully, this extended coverage will make a difference for the US with all the resources we have to lead the industrialized world in having the worst maternal mortality statistics is a blight on our nation and its healthcare system. A final piece of healthcare news is the announcement by CVS that they'd be closing 900 of their stores and converting many of them to health hubs capable of offering in-person medical care, diagnostic testing, and mental health services. Across the United States, what we're seeing is a series of shifts in how healthcare is provided. More drugs are being delivered through the mail. More care is being provided through urgent care centers 
and standalone retail outlets. Primary care is becoming increasingly virtual, but it also needs locations for those problems that require hands-on medical treatment. CVS is positioning itself to be that solution. Jeremy, let me ask you, as a patient, how would you feel getting your care virtually or through a CVS center rather than in a doctor's office? Robbie, I have used urgent care numerous times in my life when I can't book a visit with my doctor on that day or it's after hours. Um, this is a much better option than waiting till the office is back open or going to the emergency room for a non-emergency visit uh, where I still want to get myself or like my son seen as soon as possible. I had actually never used telehealth before the pandemic and was always a bit concerned about how good the care was uh, if I was not actually able to see the physician in person. Now, honestly, it's my preferred option uh, for simple problems. I've used it many times, and heck, I even used it today. My eye was bothering me the last couple of days. It's painful and red. Did a telehealth visit this morning and uh, waited in the queue while I was still working, and the video visit was quick, took five minutes. I got a prescription over to the pharmacy, and you know, I can't emphasize enough how much I love the convenience virtual care and quick care centers offer. I understand their shortcomings and the importance of having a relationship with a good primary care doctor, which I have, but for basic problems after hours or when I'm busy, virtual care is my preferred method. Robbie, I'd like to go back to something you'd mentioned at the start of the show, which was the government of Singapore not covering the medical costs of COVID-19 treatment for people who had chosen not to be vaccinated. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, this is a complex and challenging issue. To date, 85% of eligible people in Singapore are fully vaccinated, and almost all of the new hospitalizations are among the 15% of people who remain unvaccinated. Of course, in a few cases, there's medical reasons for not receiving the vaccine. And so far, children under 12 haven't been eligible. But among teenagers and adults, it is an individual decision that accounts for the unvaccinated status. The healthcare system in Singapore is one of the best, if not the best. It was rated first among 188 nations in a 2017 study published in The Lancet one of the most respected journals in medicine. The nation achieves superb results at a low total cost. How it does so is one of the most controversial questions among healthcare policy experts on both sides of the aisle. Contrary to what you might expect, the healthcare system in Singapore is predominantly privately funded and it does so through employee health savings accounts with a lower percentage of government funding actually than in the United States. But there's a strong governmental presence impacting both medical care delivery and pricing for hospitals and doctors. Some policy experts believe that the better outcomes derive in Singapore from its use of people's individual retirement accounts they say this makes them more responsible for their actions and expenses. Others view the difference as the active role that government plays. And as you can see, there are parts of Singapore's approach that appeal to both liberals and conservatives. But before we can think about applying their solution to the United States, remember, Singapore is a very regimented society that's pristine and clean streets and severe penalties 
from violating social norms. Early in the pandemic, prior to the vaccine, the country was able without citizen objection to keep the number of cases low through extensive surveillance of people, broad contact tracing and strict movement restrictions. The US is at the other end of the spectrum. We place a high value on individual freedom and personal choice. It's unlikely that our country will either try to follow Singapore's lead or have such an approach ruled constitutional in the courts. But the decision by the government to limit payments for unvaccinated patients who become severely ill raises a bigger issue. And that's, should people bear responsibility when they suffer medical problems and costs secondary to their actions or lack thereof? And here, the ethical, political, and social issues are massive. In some ways, actually, vaccine mandates are the easiest of questions, since the science is clear that the vaccines produce value, the risks are low, and access is both free and easy to obtain. But there, should there be higher co-payments, as an example, when someone is a victim in a motorcycle accident who's been drinking or hasn't been wearing a seatbelt? And what about people who choose not to be screened for colon cancer and then need hundreds of thousands of dollars of chemotherapy because the problem has become too advanced? As I wrote in Forbes, we needed to look at ways to reduce the friction to getting people protected. We should be thinking about seatbelts that could be engineered to close themselves while every time a car moves and possibly providing testing kits for colon cancer in the bathrooms of every workplace. You know, to me, COVID-19 is unique in that it is a pandemic that impacts not just individuals, but society overall. And the consequences that we discussed around mental health and education are massive. In the context of COVID-19, I come down strongly in favor of mandates, since I don't believe that we have the luxury of waiting for people to make the decision on their own to move forward to be vaccinated. But imposed out of context, this approach would generate negative unintended consequences as well. It may be less problematic than having an unvaccinated portion of the country but we need to search for better ways to do so. I think that if we're going to contain this pandemic, the United States needs a little bit more force, but a lot less friction. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like it, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.